The scripture is from uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This is the word of the Lord. Well, now comes the more boring part of the service. There's nowhere near as many thrills and chills in the Word as it were in the sacrament. And, uh, and I'm only going to tell you about how you ought to live, whereas Beverly is a great example of somebody who actually is living that way. Now, this sermon this week is a kind of bridge sermon between two series. Because on the one hand, we just completed a series on how it's possible to believe in Jesus Christ. How it's possible to put your faith in Jesus. Reasons for belief. On the other hand, next week we're going to start another series on how once you do believe, how that actually changes your life in radical but gradual ways. We're going to look at how that actually happens, the process of change. So this week we have a bridge. We're going to look at a case of actual conversion. It's a natural bridge between how you can believe and what happens if you do believe. What does conversion look like? What does it really entail? And because it's the time of the year in which we think about how Jesus affects our thinking about money, I have a case of conversion in which money is a front and center issue. So let's ask this famous and fascinating account, the story of Zacchaeus, the question, how can you have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ? How can you have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ? And there's four answers from the text. Ready? Number one, first of all, a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ can start with something as simple as intellectual openness. A life-changing encounter can start with something as simple as intellectual openness. Because in verse 3, we're told, what did Zacchaeus have to get started? Verse 3, we're told, he wanted to see who Jesus was. That's all it says. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But it's actually pretty significant. Uh, A lot of folks think that, well, if you're going to have this big life-changing encounter with God, your life needs to be falling apart, or you need to be desperate for God. And, well, sure. I've certainly seen people find Jesus in times of desperation, but in my professional opinion, as a pastor, I'm not sure that that's the best time to go after Jesus when your life is falling apart. Because when your life is falling apart and you've got all these problems, you want anything, anything that will help you. You'll believe in anything. You're actually gullible. 
And you say, well, what if the, so what if the person comes? Well, don't forget, when your life is falling apart, you're much more concerned about what Jesus can do for you, not who Jesus actually is. And in the Bible, and especially in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're constantly seeing crowds who throng around Jesus, who hail Jesus, who are excited about Jesus, who are always looking at Jesus, and yet actually never have a life-changing encounter because they're much more concerned about what Jesus can do rather than who he actually is. Because if you're focusing on who he is, then you have to say, well, what do I owe him? Hmm, that's uncomfortable. But if you look at what he can do for you, the miracles, the spectacle, the benefit of the miracles. See, the crowds would, would come around Jesus because they wanted what Jesus could give them, but they weren't all that concerned about who he actually was and what they owed to him. And that's the reason why actually Zacchaeus is ahead of the crowd here. He's not desperate. He's just intellectually open. On the other hand, he's also ahead of the Pharisees who were closed intellectually. No, whoever this guy is, he couldn't be the Messiah. He couldn't be this. He couldn't be that. Zacchaeus is a great example for us. Don't wait until your life is falling apart. But with sheer intellectual openness, just intellectual openness, it's possible to get started. So number one, a life-changing encounter requires, in some cases, nothing more than to start with than intellectual openness. But number two, if you're going to really meet Jesus Christ, you're going to have to push on through what people say and think about you. This is very practical, friends. If you're going to ever meet, really meet Jesus Christ, you're going to have to push on through what people say or think about you. What is uh, Zacchaeus, what does he want? Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but... He wanted to see who Jesus was, but. So what's the barrier? What's going to keep him from seeing Jesus? Because of the crowd, it says. The crowd is the reason he can't see Jesus. We say, well, no, wait a minute. It's just because he was short. He couldn't see over the crowd. But listen, I've been, I'm a tall guy, and when a short person comes on up, you know, and you're in the front, what do you do? You let him in. You let him in. Why? Because a five-foot-four person in front of me doesn't bother my view at all. All right? Doesn't bother me my view at all. Comes to about here, I think, or something like that. (laughs) Why wouldn't the crowd let him through? That's the issue. Why wouldn't they let him in? They despised him. He's up in the tree not because he's short. He's up in the tree because he's despised and because he's rejected. Why? Because he's a tax collector. Well, what's so bad about a tax collector? Well, see, the trouble here, we have to do a little bit of historical contexting here because when you say IRS, oh, yeah, IRS, uh, we don't like the IRS. Well, this is a little bit worse. Tax collectors were collaborators with the Roman occupational forces. Rome conquered Judea. And then, as a way of subjugating their colonies, as a way of of keeping them weak and dependent, they levied deliberately huge and crippling taxes. Huge taxes, crippling taxes, taking away most of your income, not just a big part of it. And this was the way of the Romans to, uh, to keep their colonies economically dependent and subjugated and essentially poor. And they siphoned off the wealth into their own coffers where they were able to use it the way they wanted to do it on their military and et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, a Jew who was a tax collector was in the same position, for example, as the French who cooperated with the Nazis when they took over France during World War II. And the French collaborators who uh, worked with the Nazis to subjugate the rest of their people, they were despised as traitors. And that's the same thing here. 
Because any Jew who became a tax collector was selling his soul for money. Any Jew who became a tax collector said, I want to be rich, and I want to be rich over against love for my people, (laughs) community, relationships. I don't care about any of that. I don't care about any of that. They sold their soul for money. And as a result, that's the reason they were despised. And that's the reason why they didn't let him through. And that's the reason why in verse 7, they look at him as an absolute despicable sinner. That's what's keeping him away. And I would like to, just for a second, apply this, both particularly and generally. Because I would say that one of the biggest things that keeps people from actually having a relationship with Jesus Christ is other people. And let me apply this particularly and generally. First of all, Zacchaeus doesn't let Jesus' self-righteous fans keep him away from Jesus. See, here's all these people thronging around Jesus. They're his fans. You know, they want to see Jesus. They love Jesus. Hey, Jesus. But they're self-righteous. They say, you sinner. You awful person. You despicable person. Now, why didn't Zacchaeus say, well, if this is what Jesus' people are like, this self-righteous, stuck-up, you know, people, I want nothing to do with him. But he didn't. He pushed on through, and he was right. And you know why he was right? Because we actually have a test here. I want to give you a test to distinguish people who are really religious. They think God owes them salvation because of their good deeds, because of their moral life. I want you to be able to distinguish between religious people and people who really understand the gospel of grace, who really understand Jesus' message. You see, it's possible to say, oh, I'm one of Jesus' folks and not understand his message, but be religious and moralistic and believe that God owes you salvation because you're living a good life. How do you know whether you're one of those kinds of people? How you use the word sinner. Here's how to tell the difference between real Christians and people who just are religious people who go to church. How they use the word sinner. There's your test. Because in actually in Luke 18... <laughs> which is just one chapter earlier, there's a Pharisee and a publican at the altar. You see, and the Pharisee says, I thank you, O Lord, that I'm not like this sinner. Whereas the publican doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, the way those two people use the word sinner tells you everything about their heart. And when you see people using the word sinner to marginalize people and objectify people and exclude people, these are people who do not understand the message of Jesus at all. If you do understand the gospel, you don't feel superior to anyone on the face of the earth, and you would never do that. You can't do that. So Zacchaeus is right to not let those kinds of people, self-righteous fans of Jesus, keep them away. But I would even like to, uh, in a way, uh, in a place like Manhattan, I think I'd like to apply this even a little bit more particularly There's a lot of folks that are staying away from Jesus, not just because of self-righteous fans of Jesus, but just because of what people are going to think. One of the saddest things I've ever read in my life is a piece out of the biography of Kenneth Clark. Kenneth Clark was a famous art historian, uh, and he was the producer of the uh, those great PBS uh, that great PBS series many years ago called Civilization. I know I'm dating myself to mention him, but. he was a, just you know, a, a great intellectual and a, and a, you know, a leading uh, cultural elite person. But in his biography, he's passed away now, but in his biography, you read this. When I was living in France, he says, there was a curious episode. I had a religious experience. It took place in the church of St. Lorenzo, but it did not seem to be connected with the beauty of the architecture. 
I can only say that for a few minutes my whole being was radiated with a heavenly joy, more intense than anything I had ever experienced before. But wonderful as it was, it caused an awkward problem in terms of action. My life was far from blameless. If I were to follow through on this, I would have to reform and change. My family would think I was going mad. And perhaps I thought it was a delusion. Why would God do this for me? For on moral terms, I was completely unworthy of such a flood of grace. So gradually the effect wore off, and I made no effort to retain it. I had felt the finger of God, I am quite sure, but I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. It's almost like Jesus had said to Kenneth Clark, come down out of that tree. I want to go to your house. And Kenneth Clark said, what would people think? Don't let people keep you away. Don't let them keep you away. Now, thirdly, so first of all, uh, a life-changing encounter with God, we learn, can start with something as simple as intellectual openness. It has to push through what people say or uh, you know, do to you or, or say about you or think about you. But number three, a life-changing encounter with God happens upon the discovery of the difference between grace and religion. It happens upon the discovery, the moment you understand the difference between grace and religion. You notice in verse 6, Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today. Okay, 5 and 6, pardon me, in 5. In verse 5, Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today. But in verse 9, he says, salvation has come to your house today. You know what he's saying? The founder of every other religion would speak like this. There's the way to God. There's the way to salvation. Do that and you will live. There's the way to God. There's the way to salvation. But Jesus is saying, I am salvation. And he says, you're not saved by anything you do. You're saved by what I do, what I'm going to do. And he doesn't say, there's the way to salvation. He says, I am salvation. I am your salvation. He doesn't say, there's the way to God. He says, I am God. Come into this world to absorb your debt on the cross myself, to eat it, to take it into myself so that we can be together forever. How totally different. And here's how you can see the difference between Jesus, Christianity, the gospel, and religion in general. It's the order of things. Look at verse 6. Five and six, look at verse eight and nine. Here's what I mean by that. When Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. The reason that you and I don't get goosebumps at that point, uh, we're not all that shocked, is because hospitality doesn't mean anything in our world and culture the way it did in that culture. In that time, in ancient times, and in ancient cultures, in this culture, to go to somebody's house to eat or to invite somebody to your house to eat was a sign of very deep affirmation. It was a sign of acceptance. And it was more than that, it was a commitment to a loving relationship. And that's the reason why the crowd are so shocked that Jesus would do this with a man who hadn't repented. A man who was, who was a collaborator, a man who was clearly was a despicable person. They were absolutely shocked. And the order is crucial. Jesus does not say... Are you going to clean up your life? Then I'll come to your house. See, You don't have verse 8, look, Lord, I'm going to change my ways. And then verse 5 and 6, now I'll come to your house. It's the other way around. Jesus says, I'm going to come to your house. And as a response, it's Zacchaeus saying in verse 8, I'm going to clean up my life. In response to that, 
This is the reason why verse 6 says, when Jesus Christ said, I'm coming to your house, it says, so he came down, Zacchaeus came down at once, and welcomed him, which is a word that actually means to take home, with joy. And that word joy is very strong. Zacchaeus does not come down saying, oh, what a nice idea. Maybe I'll get to know him that way. See, hospitality meant something very different. Jesus Christ says, I am coming. I am committed to you. I am coming into your life. I am loving you first. And as a response, he changes his life. Do you see the order? This is not like anything that Zacchaeus had ever seen before. Religion was, and you know, religion was this. You invite the religious person to your house and they say, well, are you going to stop being a tax collector first? Are you going to stop you know, living the way you're living first? You change, then I'll come to you. That's what everybody had always done. But here's somebody who says, I'm coming to you. And that makes finally Zacchaeus able to change. He doesn't need the money anymore. You realize that? I mean, I'm rushing forth into the fourth point, but I want... Uh, in other words, he doesn't need money to get a sense of his worth anymore. He, it, Jesus Christ's grace breaks the love of money so money can be a vehicle for love in the world. He'd never seen anything like it. And the minute he realized that Jesus Christ was showing him a grace that this moral crowd knew nothing about, that he had never known anything about, verse 6, the joy hit him, and that's what changed his life. And that's the reason why in verse 9, you don't see Jesus say, oh, you're changing your life? Now I'll save you. No, what does it say? It says, this changed life is proof that you've been saved. This changed life is a result and a flow. It flows out of the experience of my saving grace and love. It's radical. And I want you to know that throughout history, this is the place where the pennies drop. This is the place where people, when, when, you know, there, people have been very religious. Martin Luther, John Bunyan, John Wesley. There's three incredibly prominent Christians in history. Every one of them had long periods of moral striving and religiosity until they understood the gospel. And when that happened, that's when things changed from the inside out. Instead of just externally conforming, they were internally transformed. Let me just give you two examples. Martin Luther gives us the account of his conversion. He says this, Though I lived as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner before God, and I had an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love. Indeed, I secretly hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. But I meditated day and night on Paul's words in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And then I came to understand that in the gospel, righteousness is a gift from God. It's a gift from God received by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And at that moment, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. You know who this is talking? Martin Luther? He says, I was a monk. Do you realize he taught the Bible in seminary before this moment? It was the moment that he says, when I realized that righteousness was as a gift. It wasn't something I gave to God. It's something God gives to me through Jesus. He says, at that moment, the joy hit. See? He heard the Zacchaean call. He came down. His heart was filled with joy, and the changes began to happen. Or here's John Bunyan. You know, John Bunyan was filled with a sense, I'm just not living life as I ought to be living. And then he's, we're told uh, in his biography, he's the, by the way, John Bunyan's the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the classics of English literature. He said, one day as I was passing through a field, this sentence fell upon my soul, thy righteousness is in heaven. 
And I felt I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I said, was my righteousness. So wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could never say to me, where is your righteousness this week? For Jesus, my righteousness was right in front of him. Oh, then my chains fell off for good. When my heart was in a good frame, it did not make my stand with God better, nor when it was in a bad frame could it make it worse. Now I could see that my virtues, so imperfect in me, were like loose change that a rich man carries in his pockets when his gold is safe in his trunk at home. Oh, I saw that my gold was in Christ, Jesus, my Lord and my Savior. When that penny drops, when you hear the Zacchaean call, that's the spot where the life-changing encounter happens. So first, it can start with as little as intellectual openness. It has to push through what people say and think about you. It happens upon the discovery of the difference between grace and religion. And fourth, it always, if you really do get the difference between grace and religion, it always results in a radically changed life. And in this case, especially in a changed attitude and practice toward money and possessions. In verse 8, Zacchaeus says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. What a great verse. Let's break this down. First of all, he goes beyond the Mosaic law, because the Mosaic law said you must give 10% of your income away every year. That was your benevolence. 10% a year. He says, I'm going to go beyond that to 50%. And the second thing he says is, if I have cheated or defrauded anybody, and there be, what he's really getting up and saying is, anybody who I've cheated, exploited, defrauded, blackmailed, which I'm sure he did all that, I will pay back four times. And what he's doing, this is significant, is in the Old Testament, in Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the, the worst penalty for an economic crime was stealing cattle. You didn't know that rustling was something in the Bible, did you? They they were cattle rustlers in the Bible. If you stole somebody's uh, uh, cattle, you had to pay back to the person that you had uh, stolen it from four times the value of the cattle. And what Zacchaeus is actually doing is he's taking that most dire of all economic uh, penalties, uh, economic sins and the penalty, and he's applying it to himself. He says, I'm going to go beyond what people might even require of me. I'm going to give 50% away to uh, God every year, and I'm going to give, pay back people who I've defrauded four times. Now, the action is incredible, but it's the attitude that's what we're supposed to learn. Because notice how it starts. I've been thinking about this for years, and I, I made sure I looked back and I understood the Greek. He starts saying what? Look, Lord. There's an eagerness here. This is not... This is not Zacchaeus saying, Oh, sovereign king, if I change my ways, will you not smite me? What he's saying is, look, look. It's like, look, daddy. It's saying, I want to bring delight to you because you have come to my home. See, you came to me, you embraced me, and now I want to do this for you. And what is the result? This huge change. Now, the attitude is everything. The attitude is everything, and here's why. When people read, if you're a reader and you're reading Luke 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, you're going to be very confused. Because in Luke 18, Jesus meets a rich young ruler, and he says, I want you to give up all of your money and follow me. And in Luke 19, a wealthy man says, I'm going to give up 50% of my income. And Jesus says, okay. 
And if you actually go to uh, uh, some other place, where there's another place in Luke, I guess it's 12, come to think of it, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you tithe and that's good. Okay, so you're saying, all right, would you please be consistent? What do I have to give away to have a relationship with Jesus? Is it 10%? Is it 50%? Is it 100%? What must I give away to have a relationship with Jesus? And Zacchaeus is showing that that's the wrong question. If you ask that question, your grasp of the gospel is intellectual and not existential. Because a person who has grasped what Jesus has done for them doesn't ask, what must I give, but what can I give? What can I get away with? and still be responsible. A person who understands the gospel existentially, what Jesus has done, doesn't think 20 or 30 or 50% of your income a year is nuts. If you think it's nuts, you still don't intellectually grasp what Jesus has done for you. And you say, well, what has Jesus done for me? Here's what he's done. Why is Zacchaeus in that tree? You know why he's in the tree? He's despised and rejected. He deserves to be, by the way. He's in that tree because he's despicable. He's despised and rejected. But Jesus Christ says, Zacchaeus, out of sheer grace, I want you to come down into a feast of love. Come down out of your isolation, being despised and rejected. Come out of the tree into a feast of love. Why? Why can Jesus do that? Because Jesus is going to go up on the tree. It says in the Bible, in Galatians, in Deuteronomy, cursed is he who is hung on a tree. And what that means is the worst kind of execution for a criminal was to be hung on a tree or to be nailed to a cross. And Jesus did it. Jesus went up on the tree. Jesus was hung on the tree. Jesus was nailed on the tree. He was despised and rejected. Here's a man who deserves to be despised and rejected. And here's Jesus Christ who has all the love in the universe. And they switch. You come on down. Why? How can he do that? How can he just receive a man who's done all this? How can he just cover all of his sins because he's going to pay for them? Zacchaeus comes down off the tree because Jesus goes up on the tree. Zacchaeus comes out of being despised and rejected because Jesus Christ becomes despised and rejected. And if you see that, it's going to change your attitude toward your money because Jesus Christ did not tithe his life to us. (laughs) He gave it all. He had all the heavenly riches and he made himself poor that by his poverty we might become rich. And then you know what? When you see that, what you want to do is, in small but exciting ways, you want to use your money the same way. You want to say, I want to push my money out into ministry. I want to push my money out into the life of the poor. I want to bring life to the world through my money and my wealth and the sacrifice of that wealth, the way Jesus Christ brought life to me through the sacrifice of his wealth, period. And you don't ask the question, how much do I have to give? You ask the question, how much can I give? How much can I get away with giving? And that's the reason why you actually will see people out there who are following Christ, who actually are very different places on the map when it comes to giving. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying. There's people, some of you, there's people I know, people you know, who could have had incredibly lucrative jobs or maybe had incredibly lucrative jobs, but Jesus Christ has called them into different kinds of work, so they're now they're living very frugal lives. They're like the rich young ruler, they gave it all up. And also, here we have somebody who's very wealthy, giving away 50% of income every year. And guess what? If, you give, if you're wealthy and you're giving away 50% of your income, you're still going to be wealthy. Jesus is not calling everybody to stop being wealthy. He's calling some people to stop being wealthy. Is it getting confusing yet? And then, 
we have the, we have the, we have the, the, the baseline, which is 10%. In the Old Testament, believers were, were, were told, if you want to know whether you're giving away money in biblical proportions, 10% is your minimum standard. Okay? And if you can give 10% away, and it's not really sacrificing, it's not really making a difference in how you live, if you're not sacrificing the way you live in any way in order to give it, you need to give more. And if you're struggling to tithe, give away 10%, and it's creating sacrifices, you're fine. You're only doing in the slightest way what Jesus Christ did for you. And when you see that, to the degree you see it, to the degree you're existentially melted by that, you get excited about how your money can be a way of bringing life to the world. If you're scared of giving it up, if you think giving that kind of amount away is nuts, you need to have the Zacchaeus experience of grace. He loved money, and the love of money was broken. He didn't need money anymore for his self-esteem, and now money became a vehicle, a way to love others. Do you see that? You know that great place where George Herbert uh, has written a... a, 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 a he wrote a poem called The Sacrifice in which he envisions Jesus Christ speaking from the tree. It's an incredibly moving piece of poetry. And at one point, Jesus says in the poem, looking down from the cross, he says, All ye who pass by, behold and see, Adam stole the fruit, now I must climb the tree, a tree of life for everyone but only me. The cross was a tree of life for us because it was a tree of death for him. We can come down out of the tree because he went up on the tree. And when you see that, it changes your attitude toward everything, including your finances and your money. Do you hear it? Do you experience the joy? Will you come down and welcome Jesus into your life with joy? It'll make all those changes. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for providing for us this great case study of a man who got the difference between gospel and religion and it changed his, his attitude toward everything. Now, Lord, some of us, money is not as big an issue as some other issue, and, uh, and therefore you are going to meet all of us at different places. Uh, but for many of us, especially in New York City, money is a pretty big issue. And uh, we ask that you would help us to see the implications of gospel grace on how we think, feel, and act toward our money. And we pray that you'd make us, therefore, a life-giving congregation. We pray that uh, uh, with the gospel, you would turn us into an enormous engine for good in the neighborhoods, in the city around us, because you've changed our lives with the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.